Good afternoon and welcome to the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast with myself, Dr Andy Matheson. Now, it's a slightly chillier day here and I hope you're uh, all keeping nice and warm wherever you are. Today, much the same as usual, just going to run through some articles that have uh, caught my eye, a couple of interesting papers on what we can be advising our athletes to improve the absorption of iron they may be taking. And then uh, a little bit just on vitamin D and then a final bit just on some of the ultra processed food stuff that's been going on recently. But the first paper is going to be coming from the BMJ. It's called The Association Between Changes in Carbohydrate Intake and Long-Term Weight Changes. So this was a cohort study, or uh, to be honest, a combination of cohort studies, the Nurses Health Study, Nurses Health Study 2, and the Health Professionals Follow-Up Study. And this was looking at what is the impact on long-term weight changes of different food types. And this probably falls for me into the category of a study looking at something which we all probably know, we all probably advise, but again, it's, it's always reassuring to see evidence for it. And what they've attempted to do is, is quantify some of the things we might say to patients. So if you were to to ask any of us, do we think starchy or or non-starchy vegetables might be better for for losing weight, gaining weight? We'd we'd all say cut cut out the potatoes. And that's essentially what this this study shows. So it shows that uh, the outcomes of a four-year change in body weight, carbohydrates from non-starchy vegetables will reduce it, and from starchy vegetables will increase it. And that's the, the biggest thing that they, they found. They also found, rather predictably, that uh, fibre would help reduce it, and added sugar would, would cause it to, to increase. Another study I was looking at at the same time, which I think reflects similar sorts of thoughts, was an American Journal of Epidemiology study. So this was in the, this was one of the biobank studies, and this was looking at fiber. And again, taking something that we're all pretty confident with that fiber, increased dietary fibers linked with a reduction in colorectal cancer. And this was saying on their biobank study, they they showed after after adjusting for sociodemographic and lifestyle factors that fibre intake, those with the highest fifth distribution of fibre intake had 10% lower risk of cancers across seven different types of cancer. And I think one thing this is this does make me think about is what's the impact of that on people that are not getting much fibre in because they may be following a particular type of diet and the ones that spring to mind is it's not unusual to see people on a very low carbohydrate or keto diets drop the fiber too much now there are plenty of things that are low carbohydrate and high in fiber that they can they can use instead but it is it is trickier so what i'd love to see would be at some point a comparison of these different diets with a comparison of their fiber content and then looking at, at these outcomes. But um, unfortunately, that's, that's probably years away. The next study that we looked at was to do with iron absorption. And now for female athletes, not unusual that they may have 
been found to have low iron, either iron deficiency anemia or iron deficiency without anemia, maybe being treated with iron, obviously clear performance implications. And if you talk to anyone that's taken iron, you'll know it's it's not not that much fun. Isn't makes your stools darker, black, can make you more constipated, can make them harder. And certainly if you're if you're in a a close team environment and some sports sort of this gets commented on more, you all share the toilets, you're all in the changing rooms together. These athletes do say I just I just don't being on the iron because of that. Now what can we do to improve that? And and there were two two articles that I thought were really, really useful for me and, and probably ones that I do, do do make me think harder about what I'm advising people. So this first one from the American Journal of Hematology did some radioactive labelling of iron taken with water, with orange juice, with coffee and with a breakfast. And they found that orange juice gave the best absorption. And it was a sort of significant amount, 20 milligrams more iron absorbed per dose. So if you've got someone who's struggling with with their iron absorption or taking iron and, and wanting to drop down on the dose, what can I say to them? Well, the first thing I can say to them based on this is, do you drink orange juice? Is that something you can manage as long as it doesn't trigger your IBS, etc.? Let's Let's give that a go. And it might mean that you get as much effect with a lower dose. The next one was probably even more interesting. Uh, and this was actually, came across it in, in another BMJ article. This one was um, about sustainable practice, but it had just a lovely summary of use and what, what, what we can be, what can be changing about it and why we, we should be thinking about uh, changing the way we prescribe iron. So it, the, it was called Sustainable Prescribing of Iron Replacement Therapy. First author's a sergeant, last author's a Hattigan. And what this was talking about is this growing evidence that actually you get better iron absorption taking it on alternate days than you do with the traditional twice daily or three times daily that we, we normally prescribe. Now... The basis for these studies is that rather than just looking at simple iron studies, they've started including things like hepacidin, which has a variation along with our circadian rhythm. And so what we need to be doing with iron absorption studies is not just looking at the initial absorption, but monitoring the absorption over a longer period of time and monitoring the patterns of hepcidin and something called fractional absorption. So what what have I taken away from it? Firstly, so from the first paper, should I be suggesting some orange juice with the iron? Yeah, that seems pretty reasonable. And secondly, should I be more open to recommending iron every other day? So the fact that the national guidelines have changed certainly will, will prompt me to to, to move on and, and update my practice. The next one was just on vitamin D. So I was listening to a Peter Attia podcast. Um, always, always interesting. Always a lot of fun, and he was just talking about 
the supplements that he takes, which obviously isn't isn't necessarily particularly expert evidence based. That's just him him saying what he does. But he was very very clear about that. But why? did like about it is he, he talked a little bit about vitamin D and he takes it but he actually put the evidence for it as low as you can you, you can get he said there's just no good work being done on it and it's kind of crazy isn't it like how how can so little high quality work been done on and I've seen some of the, the military vitamin D work on the challenge to me was I think I do probably put a bit too much weight of evidence into the work that I've seen and that's probably because it makes me feel better about the way I'm advising. So the the paper that I'd went back to was called The Effects of Single High Dose or Daily Low Dose Oral Colocalcifal Treatment on Vitamin D Levels and Muscle Strength in Postmenopause of Women, First Officer Apiden, Last Officer Cacal. It was from 2018, it was in BMC Endocrine Disorders. And essentially it was coming back to uh, once daily administration was more effective for muscle strength although single administration does seem to improve vitamin D levels more. And this, for me, reflects back to some of the other work that I've seen on, yes, you, with a single high dose or regular high dose weekly or, or, or monthly, you do get a higher peak, but it doesn't seem to last and it doesn't seem to have the same protective effects. And there's been previous evidence for that for upper astringy tract infections and previous and, and this evidence for postmenopausal woman muscle strength. So yeah, the evidence for vitamin D very much guide rails, very much low risk of harm. And if people are going to take it, I think I'm still going to be recommending daily, daily dosing. The final bit I was going to touch on was to do with ultra-processed foods. This was just going back to an, an article in the BMJ. I clearly read it fairly thoroughly this week for once. Just on something called the Science in Medicine Centre and a conference that they held that there has been some concern about the funding for and how clear they were on the funding involved in that conference. And the background of this is the push and pull over ultra-processed foods and what you would probably call the newcomers to the area who are pointing out that this may well be linked to the increasing obesity levels we see in the UK and over the world and, and negative long-term health outcomes and the sort of slightly what's a what's a reasonable term for it accepted views old-fashioned views depending on where you're coming from that ultra processed foods are, are actually a breakthrough in trying to do what we can to feed people that can't afford non-ultra processed foods and that there is reasonable science out there to show there's not that much risk with them and it's fascinating in many ways watching these two to and fro's and lots of mud getting flung everywhere and, and you end up thinking well where can I go to get some some reasonable evidence and the, the article I went back to was one in European Journal of Clinical Nutrition called Ultra Processed Foods and the Development of Obesity in Adults from uh, it's from 2020-23 and I, I thought it was just a nice nice kind of summary of what's going on 
as I said, I have been very impressed with a couple of the books. As as ever, trying to avoid too much of an, an echo chamber. I read a nice article by Christopher Snowden. It was in on a website called The Critic, just talking about where he felt Christopher Tolkien's book fell down. And it's interesting, uh, health writers, when I've met them in the past, I've always found very impressive. The problem they have is that they are also very good at writing articles in a way that that is very attractive it's not they're not writing not trying to write pure science they are trying to to sell a paper and persuade you of a viewpoint so i most of what he thought what he wrote in the article i didn't think was was great and he was picking and choosing and picking away at the book in an attempt to to get his viewpoint across, which is absolutely reasonable. He's, he's a healthcare journalist and works for the uh, Institute of Economic Affairs, which obviously doesn't mean that he's not able to write good articles, but but does mean that you have at the back of your mind that this is uh, they have a one-star rating on transparency.org and initially were funded by Big Tobacco. I did really like one point that he made, and that was just about the quality of science made in industry and and that's it it is the best science it is the best scientists they have the most money and he what i take from that would be that therefore we have to be extra careful about what we're reading into that science that there's no excuse for the trials being done not being done well large enough and with with very clear and open talks about what the concerns might be that this is industry funded. You can understand with with non-industry research why sometimes it might not be as good quality. And a, a real example of that would be would be on the, the SMC website. I mean the the list of people going out of their way to so essentially industry funded scientists or academics that work very closely with industry i mean it's they're an incredible bunch of people and and they they've all got incredible cvs and they write very forcefully against what they see as someone jumping into their area but the question's always going to be you shouldn't need a television doctor jumping in and writing a book you should have done this work already there shouldn't be any doubt. Yes, you're you're head of some very impressive institutions, but the role of the institutions has not been carried out. Otherwise, we wouldn't be asking these questions right now. And that seems to be the point they miss when they get over-defensive. Well, maybe that's the reason they're so over-defensive, is that is they realise that, yeah, they've, they have all dropped the ball. Whether or not, whatever your view on ultra-processed food, whether or not you feel it's a, a necessary evil in, in a world where, unfortunately, we can't put the food we would like to on everyone's table, or whether or not you feel that it's it's something that should have been avoided and is is purely a, a product of, of people trying to make profit. With either of those viewpoints, better trials and better data should have been done. The final article I thought we'd touch on was another interesting one. It was about menstrual cycle hormones. It was called Menstrual Cycle Hormones and Oral Contraceptives, a multi-method systems physiology-based review of their impact on key aspects of female physiology. 
and it was from Stuart Phillips group and it was looking at does oral contraceptive and menstrual cycle have an impact on physiology and performance and was pretty disappointed with it. They seem to be confusing the idea of no evidence of effect with evidence of no effect, which for such an impressive group of individuals is is very disappointing. And the no evidence of effect was highlighted to me by another article I saw. It was called Underfueling for the Work Required, Assessment of Dietary Practices and Physical Loading of Adolescent Female Soccer Players During Intensive International Training and Game Schedule and Nutrients. And again, not, not a great article. We're just trying to get the basics of what do we actually think adolescent elite soccer players eat? How can... Have we got any decent data on it? And the answer is no. And there still isn't after this article. It was only an end of 23. But at least it was an attempt. But we have such a poor understanding of energy availability across m- most groups of female athletes. We're starting to get the barest understanding at elite level. Below elite level, very little, if no good data. So the idea that we can with so many unknowns, the fact that we can start to say, well, we can confidently say that menstrual cycle probably doesn't have an impact on your physiology is slightly daft. Right, that's that's it for today and, and this week. Hope you're having a super week and I'll catch up with you soon. Thanks very much.